We are going to be considering tonight a section from John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 13, with a focus on verse 12. But here's the context, as I've been saying, uh, it's very important, so here we go. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee... He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Let us ask God to bless his word. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your word that testifies to your Son, may we not simply be readers of the Word, but those who understand the Word and understand it as Christians. That is to say, to understand it with the eyes of faith that are always longing for the sight of Christ. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this morning I had as my sermon title, uh, This Isn't Math Class, and it occurred to me how, as a non-mathematician, I always had an admiration for math, because math to me in school was a black and white issue. It was either right or it was wrong. If you studied uh, and did your homework at math, you usually could uh, finish with a good mark, and if you did not study and tried your best, Uh, you usually didn't because math wasn't one of those things you could just make up as you go along, like those art students. And that's because it's objective. You are either right or you're wrong. And I like that. I think some of us appreciate that as well. Black and white, it is right, it is wrong. But a lot of schooling and a lot of life is not black and white, it is gray, it is subjective, and a lot of situations we find ourselves in do not have the black and white of math, but the grayer area of the so-called arts, the subjective uh, feeling of the teacher who did not quite uh, understand how you were able to read into Jane Austen, the feminist Uh, motif that is so clearly present, and so on. Uh, And you see this is uh, how it goes in life. 
uh, we are uh, dealing with a lot of interpretive issues, a lot of opinions, a lot of biases, and so on. And that makes for sometimes very exciting events, but it also makes for some frustrating events. Now, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to alert you to a frightening reality about human nature. The frightening reality about human nature is how very difficult it is to get humans to agree on interpreting the same event. So, for example, in 1954, there was a Dartmouth psychologist. His name was Albert Hasdorf, and he uh, teamed up with uh, Hadley Cantrell. He was a compatriot of his at Princeton University, two Ivy League schools, and they wrote an essay, uh, which I was able to uh, go over afresh on the way into church tonight called They Saw a Game. And you can look up this essay, They Saw a Game, and read it for yourself. And it highlights the a football game that took place between Dartmouth and Princeton universities, American football, and the subsequent interpretation of the game by the respective students of each university. The Dartmouth students appeared to have seen a very different game than the Princeton students. The rougher side was the side that was opposing their school. The cheap side, the side that deserved more penalties, was apparently the side that was not the team you were going for. And this is a perennial problem in anything, especially in sports. You see what appears to be a foul in the box. Is it a penalty? Is it not? Is it a handball? Is it not? And if your team is the team that wants the foul, the penalty, it's amazing how we say, oh, it's so obvious. Come on, can't you see that? And then those who are on the other side say, no, he barely touched him. And I've seen people come to blows in such situations. What explains this? This phenomenon that goes beyond sports. In fact, they've done a study on this whereby they had a sort of make-believe scenario where people were told to look at a situation that involved uh, what appeared to be protesters outside an abortion clinic. They were anti-abortion protesters. And then the same type of situation, other people were told that they were pro-gay rights activists outside of an army center. And as people who were conservative interpreted those who were pro-gay, they interpreted the events by uh, appealing to the fact that they looked dangerous. They seemed to be out of control. They lacked uh, the ability to protest appropriately. And then you talk to the other side, and they said the exact same things. They zeroed in on what appeared to be the nefarious elements involved in the protest. And this can go on and on and on. It is what has been called motivated reasoning. It happens in other areas of life.
the marketing techniques, this is in grade three, the marketing techniques of Energizer made it sound like they were way better than Duracell. And a bunch of girls said, yeah, but Energizer is better than Duracell. And I was like, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, and uh, so that was a, a reminder of the peer pressure I was under even at the early age of uh, grade three. And that somewhat relates to what I'm speaking about here. Motivated reasoning. Uh, as many of you will know, smoking uh, has been confirmed to lead to possible lung cancer, but a lot of reporters in the 70s and 80s were smokers themselves, and so the smoking companies had the reporters in their hands, and whatever they could do to cast a little bit of doubt upon the fact that smoking led to cancer, the reporters were keen to seize upon the doubt, not upon the facts. And again, this has to do with our biases, how we want to look at a situation, what do we look for in any given situation, and so on. What we also find out is that once people have made up their mind, sometimes when you present facts to them, that can actually make it worse. Because they get defensive. And so the more facts you give, the more upset they get. Or they will accept the one fact, but then the other reasons why they were against something will become more pronounced. The point is, is that it's a little bit depressing when you think about how we engage interpreting situations, facts, theories, and all of the rest. And this is something that Christians certainly are not free from in their own daily living. What are we to do about this? And that is really one of the uh, ideas that I think comes up in the ministry of Jesus Christ. If ever there was a person whereby you had completely opposite opinions on who he is and what he did, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. So you read that his family thought he was out of his mind. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, his own family thought he was out of his mind. If you look at John chapter 7, what we read earlier, and we'll get there in a little bit, but his own brothers didn't even believe in him. His family thought he was out of his mind. His own brothers didn't believe in him. When Jesus said in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones to throw at him. They attempted to stone the rock of ages. A Pharisee, when Christ came over, Simon the Pharisee, didn't even show him the expected hospitality that would be afforded to guests in that day. And Jesus takes up this issue with the Pharisee, that the woman has not ceased to kiss his feet from the time she came in, but Jesus wasn't even given a glass of water. You also will find in various places like Matthew chapter 11, where he says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and what do they say? Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus eats and drinks. They interpret it as drunkenness and gluttony. John doesn't. He has a demon. Matthew chapter 9, and they were going away, and behold, a demon-oppressed man was mute who was brought to him. Surely they couldn't interpret this wrongly, because the demon was cast out, and the mute man began to speak, and the crowds marveled. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. 
And the Pharisees were so happy and praised God that the Messiah had finally come. The Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. You see how they interpreted his actions? In the worst possible way. John chapter 10, verses 19 to 21, there was a division among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. In other words, Jesus is the only sane person who's ever lived in this world. If you think about it, no one here can claim total sanity. Sin makes us insane. It makes us out of our minds. And yet, they thought He was insane. Others said, however, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And they'd been reading their Old Testament that nobody opens the eyes of the blind except the Messiah as prophesied in the book of Isaiah. So different interpretations. When it came to releasing a criminal, the Jewish people would rather have Barabbas, a known murderer, let loose upon the community than to have anything more to do with the Prince of Peace. And so when you come to John chapter 7, you shouldn't be surprised because there is much muttering about him among the people. And what do they say? Well, some say he is a good man and others say no, he is leading people astray. So what is the context? Well, the Jews were looking for him at the feast in verse 11. They ask, where is he? And as they are looking for him, the Jewish authorities, they hope, it seems, this occasion of the feast will draw Jesus out of Galilee, where he was under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, and bring him into their hands in Jerusalem, where they could kill him. So they speak of the words, that man, and that probably Uh, refers to exasperation. A lot of times when people don't like someone, they can't even bring themselves to say his name. That man. That man. And there are crowds, Judeans, but also Galileans, and there's lots of discussion. And notice some say he is a good man. They cannot deny the miracles that he's performed. They cannot deny that people who are blind now see that the lame walk, that he was able to feed thousands of people. They can't deny that. But when they say he is a good man, there's something a little bit sad even about that confession if you think about it. Because he is not a good man. He is the good man. He is the only good man. It is one thing to call him a good man. It is another thing to recognize that he is only good, that he is the good man, the only righteous one, the Savior of the world. And so even this confession, he is a good man, falls short of what they should have professed about the Messiah. Others said he leads people astray. And I don't think they quite understood just how many people he would lead astray. You are those he has led astray. There are people all over the world he has led astray. 
millions upon millions upon millions, many millions to come if he does not return, many millions in the past. It may be billions. I don't know that he has led astray. That is to say, he has led them away from the prince of this world and into the kingdom of light. You can imagine what it was like. He leads people astray. They had no idea what he was, they were saying. He was going to turn the world upside down. And so he leads people astray. They meant it negatively. He deceives people. But Jewish circles after the resurrection would basically say he has led people astray. This is a phantom. And yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The point is this. What you see in the person of Jesus Christ tells you a lot about life in general. That you can have a clear-cut case of someone who is good, righteous, holy, and people are so wicked and perverse, they will even look at such a clear-cut case, a black-and-white case, and say the opposite of who he is. Now, that should give you pause for a second about the natural man's ability to interpret all facts in this world in a way that does justice to facts. You probably, some of you, have concerns about the media. Correct? You shouldn't be surprised. Do you think people have changed since the first century? Do you think that the media have the mind of Christ and seek to interpret every fact in the best possible light? And yet, we're constantly amazed, aren't we? And not just the media, but everyone in this world, by nature, has a total inability to interpret facts accurately because sin deceives and twists and it leads us to want to see things that simply don't exist. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians? It means a number of things. The first thing that needs to change in any human being when it comes to interpreting this world and understanding this world is their view of Jesus has to change first and foremost. You can't simply get people to try and believe certain facts about things and expect them to understand them the way you do as a Christian if their view of Christ is is one whereby they may as well say he has a demon. They may not say that outwardly, but that's basically where they're at, that he leads people astray. And so the first thing that we need to understand is that our view of Christ and the view of Christ by others has to be in a line with God's view of Christ. And so the Father says, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What is the Father's view of the Son? That He loves Him and that He is pleased with Him because He is His Son. Jesus has his own view of himself. In John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, let me just take 30 seconds to give you a little bit of a theological debate. Now that our church has turned into one of those churches. It used to be boring for so many years around here, but now we have a lot of people who love theology, and it's so exciting, but it's a bit terrifying at times. 
I and the Father are one. Some say, well, this is uh, speaking about Christ and the Father being one in essence. And then Calvin takes the view in his commentary. Actually, this is just speaking about their purpose of will to do the same thing. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses love Calvin's commentary on this verse and say, ah, you see, it's not talking about essence. Now, the point I'm trying to say is that Jesus is likely saying, I and the Father are one in terms of our will and purpose because they are one in essence. But when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's saying that what you see me doing is what the Father is doing, and what the Father is doing is what you see me doing. So later on in that same chapter, he says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe in me. You see, it has to do with the works that he's doing. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus was constantly trying to show people that He really is the Son of God, that He is the Son of the Father. He was persuading them by His words and by His actions. And so His own view of Himself was determinative for what He did. He had to believe He was the Son of God. Otherwise, he couldn't have done the very things that he did. It would have been blasphemy. But it must also be the same view of the Son as the Spirit. So in John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus says, He that is the Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So you have to believe if you're going to interpret anything in this world correctly, in the big scheme of things, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And you have to submit yourself to Him as the Son of God. Relinquish your thoughts and your actions and your beliefs to Jesus as the Son of God. You have to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That is the first thing you have to do if you're going to be able to interpret anything with the mind of Christ. So Paul will say to the Corinthians, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And there's a sense in which the answer is nobody. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? The answer is nobody. But then he says amazingly to these Corinthians who were so taken up with Greek philosophy and wisdom, we have the mind of Christ. Whatever the Greeks have, we have the mind of Christ. And so we can now understand this world. We can understand ourselves. We can understand others. And that then becomes the basis for how we ought to think of ourselves. We need to have a proper view of ourselves. And that then becomes the main issue. I had a rather humorous incident this week. Uh, because Paul is going to exhort us to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And uh, I thought I would go upstairs. Barb was out, and I gave myself a haircut. And we have this running joke in our house that when I go and get a haircut and I come back, Barb says, oh, it's so much better when you go and get a haircut. Which is to say, don't cut your flaming hair yourself, Mark. But, you know, I had a weak moment I cut my hair. You're all looking at my hair now, aren't you? Well, that's fine. And I, she had been out, and she says, oh, you got a haircut. I said, yeah. She goes, yeah, it's so much better when you go and get a haircut. 
And boy, the smile on my face, you, you know, it just lit up the room. And I says, you, I cut my hair. And she's like, no. And I says, oh. and I'm not joking. I was walking around thinking, Mark, you've done it again. You have done it again. Your talents, man. And then I was preparing this sermon and Romans 12 was a big part of my sermon because you're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And as I've said, this begins with a proper view of Jesus Christ, and that is going to then help us to understand everything. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what does it mean then to have the right view of Christ that the Father has of Christ, that the Son has of Himself, and that the Spirit has of Christ? It means that when you are in Christ then, your disposition in this world is going to be marked by one of humility first and foremost. So then you come to Philippians chapter 2. And right before you get to the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2, Where's the emphasis? It's upon how you're to think. Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus. Your mind. Just as Paul says in Romans 12. Your mind. What is your mind to be? It is the mind of Christ. And that mindset, the mind of Christ is God's profound wisdom regarding man's salvation through a crucified Messiah, which was once hidden but now revealed. And so practically, what does this look like? It means that as you view Christ, you're viewing Christ through the lens of the cross. And as you view Christ through the lens of the cross, you view yourself through the lens of the cross, that you needed a cross so that you could be saved, and that others need a cross so that they can be saved. And this helps us to deal with all of our fleshly behavior when it comes to divisiveness, when it comes to our opinions, when it comes to the things we hold dearly. We are not going to leave the realm of the gray. We're not going to leave the realm whereby we have sharp disagreements with one another. We're not going to leave the realm where I sit in a room with Mike O'Donohue watching Man United and Liverpool and have completely different views of the game. He's not that holy. And neither am I. But in those situations, the mind of Christ has to be present. That Christ has to be first in your life if you have a right view of Christ. And that is what Philippians 2 should lead you to because what is last in execution is first in intention. So what does that mean? It means what will happen last? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is last in execution, and that means it was first in God's intention. The most important thing 
was to get you to that place where you will confess that He is Lord. So everything about your life is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But also Christ's death should do what? It will humble you because of what He did for you and the lengths to which He went to save you. So your disposition in this world has to be one of humility because look what God had to do to save you. And then if Christ's death is true, it is an example to follow. It takes away selfishness. It looks to the interests of others. Look at verses two and three and four in Philippians chapter two. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You have a different opinion than someone? That's one thing. But to be conceited about it is another. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Think about some of the opinions that you've held so strongly in the last decade. The last few years, the last few months, the last few weeks, the last few days, the last few hours. And do not walk out of here saying that you're not allowed to hold strong opinions. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in your strong opinions, is there humility? Has it been brought in subjection to the mind of Christ? Has it been brought into subjection where you consider others' interests more significant than your own? Because humility in light of the gospel is going to change the way we interpret this world. Thinking of others more significant than ourselves is going to change the way we think about this world. And when you get to a passage like 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us that love believes all things and hopes all things. In other words, we start to give the best interpretation of someone's actions, not the worst. That's what makes Christians different is that we can leave then the things up to God. I say to God, love believes all things, hopes all things. I'm trusting you with this God because my natural inclination is to think the worst of people. You see, every thought has to come under subjection to the gospel, to Christ, and to think as He does. And then and only then are you in any position in this world to try and begin to interpret things in a way that brings glory to God. Will there be disagreements? Yes. Will there be times when we don't see eye to eye? Yes. But never at the expense of humility, never at the expense of love, never at the expense where we can say the mind of Christ was jettisoned so that I could be right and that I could boast and think more highly of myself than I ought to. Because that is anti-Christ. It is anti-Christian. And it goes against the example set by our Lord. And there's something very freeing in that when you can hand something over to the Lord by believing the best of someone else or something else and leave it to the Lord. There's something freeing in not having to be right all the time because you are living with a huge humble spirit, it's much more freeing than the opposite, where you always have to be right, always have to prove your case, and always have to have the final word, because the final word belongs to God, and it belongs to Christ, and it will be the word whereby we fall upon our knees and say, He is the Lord, not us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for
your word and we ask that we would in our lives remember that to have the mind of Christ is to have everything. That we do not need to be rocket scientists. We do not need to be Nobel laureates. We do not need to solve all scientific mysteries, but we do need to have a spirit of humility, a spirit of love, of forgiveness, of grace and compassion, and we pray that we will have that in abundance. To the praise of Christ's glorious name, amen.